superconsciousness is at the origin of every success, of all success, from the largest to the smallest, from the world changing to the unseen, there's always a touch of that super consciousness at the very heart of every success that we have. At first, that may actually seem like a startling comment to make. After all, we can probably immediately think of all kinds of people who seem to have had successes. Not only are they clearly not saints, they don't seem to have a spiritual bone in their body. So how is it possible that even they too are touching that superconscious state to achieve their success? Well, Swamiji gives a hint of this in his book, Intuition for Starters. He says, first off, that you don't have to be in a superconscious state all the time to think superconsciously. We see that repeatedly. People who have great insights in certain areas, they may not have other aspects of their lives together. They may not understand fully even where this source of inspiration is coming from. And yet, even the least spiritual person is most often aware that that source of inspiration that they're drawing from, that spark that led them on that path to success, is not coming solely from them or from their own minds. I'm reading a book right now about the life of an Indian mathematician, Srinivasa Ramanujan. It's a fascinating story. He was a, he lived in the end of the 18th, or end of the 19th and into the 20th century, died around 1920. He grew up poor in an Indian village. He had no formal education whatsoever, no training, no real teachers, and he learned mathematics essentially by himself. And he would occasionally find a book, devour it. By the age of 13, he had devoured the most advanced level of mathematics books he could find. But he was totally untrained. But he started seeing these cascades of mathematical formulas coming in front of him. And he would start writing it down. And he started actually solving some of the greatest mathematical puzzles of all time all by himself. And actually, at one point, he was on the brink of starvation and dying. And he wrote a letter, several letters, to some mathematics professors at Cambridge in England. And one of those professors who received the letter, a man named Hardy, immediately saw. I mean, at first, he thought it was a crank, because this guy Hardy was a famous mathematician, and he got crackpot letters from people all over the world who thought that they were a genius, and they were just writing gibberish. But when he opened this letter, he saw something different. Even though it was undisciplined or it didn't use the exact language of the trained mathematician, he could see that spark of genius in it. And he ended up bringing Ramanujan from India to Cambridge to study with him. And over Ramanujan's very short career, he died, I believe, around age 32, he made 3,900 contributions to mathematics, more than just about anyone, with almost no formal training. But what's very interesting is Ramanujan himself says that there is no meaning to a mathematical equation unless it represents a thought of God. 
And when he explains his process, most of the 3,900 solutions and ideas he saw were coming to him through intuition, through superconscious intuition. And what's so interesting about that, of course, is that we would think that mathematics would be the last place that intuition might exist. A real mathematician would tell you differently. I'm sure Gyande would immediately object to that. <laughs> but as lay people, our impression is that things like mathematics are entirely logical and that there's a process and steps and structure. But in fact, all the deepest discoveries are intuitive. Of course, you might say, well, Ramanujan, I, he was a mathematician, but he was Indian, so he knew these concepts, and so it's kind of cheating. <laughs> so consider something the opposite of him. There's a famous military writer, a soldier and a theorist in military studies named von Clausewitz, who is a Prussian writer. He wrote a very famous book called On War, in fact, he was the person who coined the term the fog of war, if you've ever heard that concept. The fog of war is the idea that in the middle of a war, there's so much going on and one side can never really fully grasp even where their own people are, what the other side is doing, all the complexities of it, and it creates a fog. And it's the job of a great general to figure out how to penetrate this fog. Well, von Clausewitz studied Napoleon. And he came to one conclusion about why Napoleon was so successful. And he said it was Napoleon's intuition. Napoleon had an intuitive sense of where to go and what to do. And in fact, von Clausewitz, today if you read Popular Science or something, you see all these articles about how they're cutting through the fog of war through technology and GPS and using drone planes. And you would think that the way you cut through the fog of war is through technology. But actually, no. Von Clausewitz, in his book, says that the way you cut through the fog of war is through intuition. And he schooled all of the generals to use their intuition. And he actually is one of the most influential military theorists. Everyone from Patton to most recently General Petraeus, who was running the Iraq War, who sort of turned the tide of that, they're all disciples of von Clausewitz. Patton himself said that, or Patton himself was famous for not preparing at all in advance for his military campaigns. His commanding general, Omar Bradley, was exasperated by him. Here there was these giant battles of World War II about to happen, and Patton did almost no preparation. He had nothing in place, and what he said was he was waiting for the intuition to strike him first as to what to do and what was going to happen, and then he planned around it. But we see that in everything we do. I was reading recently a little, just a little snippet. There was a man, a German scientist named Kekule, who discovered the chemical structure of benzene, which is used in pharmaceuticals and rubber and plastics. It's actually a pretty important ingredient to us. Nobody understood back in the 19th century what the chemical structure of it was or how it really worked. They knew it existed. They couldn't replicate it. They knew they needed it for a variety of things. Kekule says that he cracked the code of the chemical structure of benzene because he had a vision. It popped into his head and he could see 
how it was structured, and then he was able to recreate that in the lab. Michelangelo says that there is no real beauty on this earth, but it all, is all the reflected beauty of the, the divine world. And he said, in, he was carving a statue of an angel out of marble, and he said, I saw the vision of the angel first, and then I merely carved the marble so that it was free. He starts with that super consciousness, and so we see it in art, but it's in politics too. I was reading a biography of Truman recently, and at the Berlin blockade, which was one of the moments that we came closest to war with the Soviet Union, Harry Truman said that he made his decision on instituting what became called the Berlin Airlift through an intuitive understanding of what to do. And he actually didn't really consult any of his generals, his advisors. They didn't work out in advance what the implications would be, which on paper many people thought were insane and that would almost surely actually lead to war. And Truman said that he just intuitively knew how to solve that problem. Also, JFK and RFK, when they were dealing with the Cuban Missile Crisis, it turns out RFK says that when he was trying to decipher what was going on with the Soviets and how to keep us from the brink of war, that he had an intuitive understanding of the way to work with the Soviets, what to offer them and what to do. And it was a very confusing thing. We didn't, at that time, we actually didn't even know who was running the Soviet Union. They didn't announce to us who, who the real decision makers were. And at one point, they got one letter that said one thing from the Soviet Union. And then a few days later, they got something that said the exact opposite. And it was clear there was an internal power struggle. But they didn't know which letter they were supposed to be listening to and which direction. And Bobby Kennedy, it was actually, he really said it was through his intuition that he understood and was able to advise JFK on what the right course of action was. But the, you know, the most amazing thing to me, the thing that really seals the deal about how super consciousness is at the, the heart of every success comes from a man that I always thought was, well, I mean, just a complete jerk. And <laughs> could not be, in, I mean, you would think maybe I'm offending someone out there, but the most, I don't know, antithetical to the notion of superconsciousness that exists. This is a very famous businessman and egomaniac. Any idea who I'm thinking of? <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> Not my favorite guy, or I certainly didn't think he was my favorite guy. And then I saw something very interesting. He said three things in an article. He was talking about his success. He said, first of all, one of the things that he always does is that he concentrates never on the problem, but only on the solution. Does that sound familiar? And then he says, I always have trust in God. Shocking. <laughs> and then the third thing he said, which just blew me away, is he said, my entire empire was built on intuition. Now, let's face it. That still doesn't make him a good guy. I mean, <laughs> he's probably still a raging egomaniac. But that's just the point, is that even when we're imperfect and we have all these areas in our lives that we clearly don't have it together, still, 
even if we're having any success at all, it has to be touching superconsciousness at some point in some way. It's impossible to have success without it. And when you think about it, it's actually really obviously true because all wisdom, as I forget if it was Swamiji or, or Master who said this, but all wisdom is received, never concocted. So if it's just the product of our own brain, it can't possibly have any application outside of our own little lives. So in all success, and all the successes that we've talked about are clearly reaching out to a great, to all of us and affecting many people. And the only way that could be possible is if it was received wisdom. But none of these people are our role model, of course. They all have bits and pieces and they, they suggest certain truths to us. But of course for us, as devotees and as people who are trying to consciously develop ourselves spiritually, the real role models are people like Swami Kriyananda. I've watched Swamiji in so many different areas and ways and circumstances draw upon his superconscious intuition to solve every problem and accomplish everything. We know that he composes music by just receiving the melody. He's talked about that many times. I've watched him write. For example, I was there when he was writing most of the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, and he was just clearly in a superconscious flow. He was putting out page after page after page very quickly and without thinking. I saw him write a secrets book once by simply closing his eyes, meditating, putting his thoughts at the point between his eyebrows for a few seconds, and then he wrote the whole book in two minutes. But it's a great book. Even with something, with someone like Swamiji, we were once uh, vacationing somewhere, and when you vacation like that, you just take meal after meal after meal. It's just a never-ending procession of breakfast and then lunch and dinner, and each one kind of blends into one another. <laughs> And so yeah, you're spending a lot of time talking and you're around food a lot. So at some point we got to talking about food and eating. And he said something very interesting. He said that he eats at the spiritual eye. He tastes food, not through his taste buds, but through right here. And I started practicing that. You can do that. You can taste through your super consciousness. We can do everything through our superconsciousness. We know that one way of tapping the superconsciousness, the most important way, of course, as was discussed yesterday, is meditation. So we won't go into all the ins and outs of why meditation links to superconsciousness. It's been covered and perhaps will be covered more by others. There is just one last thing, though, that I'd like to suggest about how we can bring superconsciousness into our daily lives into a greater sense of conscious and then superconscious awareness. I've spent uh, a good part of the last four, five, four years now uh, lying in bed a lot in pain, chronic pain, severe pain. And when I was lying there, sort of overcome with a tremendous amount of pain. It was washing over my conscious mind. You start, you have a lot of time on your hands. You're just kind of lying in bed all day. It's kind of dark in the room and you're not really doing very much. So it gives you time to experiment, try out a few things. 
And one of the things that I eventually realized as I was lying there is that I didn't really want to go subconscious because the pain in my body was really emanating in a way from the subconscious system. I mean, our limbic systems and nervous systems are basically subconscious systems. So turning into the subconscious is no relief. The conscious mind, my conscious mind, was just washed over with pain. And it was actually, in a way, distorting my thinking. There was the last thing in the world I wanted to do in some ways was be conscious. So what's the way out? Well, the way out is through the superconscious mind, through trying to connect to superconsciousness. And it really clicked for me the most deeply one day when I was lying there and there were a couple children, neighbors, who were running around in the field next to my house, our house, and we were, I was lying there listening and I could hear them laughing and feel the joy and I was lying there isolated alone in the dark and pain. And you would not think that that was a good formula. I mean, you would even think that some people might react and think those children are annoying them. It's making it worse. And I don't really even, I have a theory as to who those children were, but I'm not even 100% sure. It's not a personal thing. But what I started to do impersonally was I tuned in to their laughter and their joy. And I started, even though I was separated from them, and they didn't even know I was there. I listened and felt through the superconsciousness their laughter and joy. And through that, I was able to raise my own level. And in a way, at least to the extent that I could sustain it for however long I could sustain it, I was able to overcome that pain and live at least a little bit in that state of superconscious awareness. And so really what we find is that no matter whether you're a mathematician or an artist or a politician, no matter what you do, no matter how you're trying to succeed or what your project is, it's that superconscious awareness that's all around us, that's inside of us, that's between us, that is the real place that we find our solutions. And so when, it's, when we want to feel that success, when we want to find those solutions to our thorniest problems, really all we need to do is go inside, find that superconscious awareness within, and grab it for all we can.